I'm Marnie Vinge, and this is Erioki. Join me and my friends as we explore the darker side of the Sooner State. I'm Marnie Vinge, and this is Erioki, and I'm here today with Amy, is it Reese? Yes. Okay, that's what I thought. Um, and you're a producer at KOCO, is that correct? Yes, I am. Okay, so go ahead and tell people a little bit about yourself and how you got into that and what brought you to the podcast today. Okay, sure. Um, my name is Amy and I work at KOCO. Um, I'm a producer and that kind of means that I put the shows together. So I pick the stories and I decide if that story is going to have pictures or video or a graphic or thinkers will be on camera or off camera. Um so yeah, it takes a lot of time. Yeah, that <laughs> it's sounds not, like it. I think that people think that there's not that much that goes into it, but it's like I've seen the behind the scenes before, and it's very like there's a lot that goes into yeah, it. Yeah, there's a lot, and there's a whole yeah. team behind the faces that you see putting the show together, making sure it goes off smoothly, and then like there aren't any mistakes, or that oh, yeah. we're getting like the right video at the right time. Um, it's a whole team of people, and so, it takes hours put together before oh, you actually watch it at like yeah. five and six and ten p.m. Mm-hmm. So whenever there's like severe weather, do you work on that part of it too, like producing that part, or is that mainly like the meteorologists like do that part? So it's mainly the meteorologists, okay. um, just because. Well, so there's active. Se- I'm sorry, there's active, <laughs> okay. active severe weather. Um, and then there's whenever it's all over and we're doing like damage or okay, there's flooding yeah. or whatever. Yeah. So when it's active, that's all the Mets. Okay. And, you know, I, the producers are in the booth just making sure that everything is timed correctly. Mm-hmm. We're updating um, locations for all the storm chasers yeah. and making sure that if there is like a crazy video or a picture of a tornado or flooding or whatever it is that we can help get it on the air as quickly as possible. Um, but most of our job during severe weather is after it's... Okay. Yeah. So when it's not active and, you know, it's just like damage and flooding yeah. and here's some hail and oh my gosh. it's putting all that stuff together and making sure it flows together and that it's yeah. make it sure that it's up to par. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I get that. Well. I totally get that. So um, today we're going to be talking about something that a listener actually requested that we talk about. So shout out to this listener that wanted this subject. Um, we're going to be talking about the Brady Theater. I love it. Yes. And I didn't realize, like, when I started researching this, how much Oklahoma history is, like, intertwined with this location. Um, it's pretty, like, huge in Oklahoma history. Um, so go ahead and tell tell them what you told me before the podcast started about <laughs> the name of the Brady Theater. Because okay. the name is changing this summer. Yes. Yeah. Um, so the name is changing this summer to the Tulsa Theater. Um, but... The Brady Theater, so the building itself has gone through several different names Mm -hmm. um, from the very beginning, but the Brady Theater is named after W. Tate Brady, who, um, for any history buffs out there, he was like a founding father of Tulsa, basically. So whenever Tulsa was like an oil town and like it was all booming, he was one of the original men who came in and helped build it up. So there are streets and buildings and different like, there's a whole district named after him, actually. Um... Just because, you know, when you have money, you could do that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> but sure. he wasn't, um, by historical standards, the best of people. Mm-hmm. He uh, was a member of the KKK. I don't remember the exact group okay. group name, but he's yeah. definitely a one of those people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. And he had a hand in some pretty 
awful acts. Yeah. Um, so while it is not confirmed from anybody in Tulsa, particularly the new owner, um, that they're changing the name because he's tied to the KKK, mm-hmm. it definitely stems a long line of different changes around the city um, and, and the state and the country. For oh, yeah. You know, yeah. Get into it uh, from just changing from like really strict conservative Confederate or KKK mm-hmm. Related. heritage. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I think it's, it's a good thing. Um, Agreed. Yeah, so so as of today, the name is still the Brady Theater, and it's located at 105 West Matthew Brady Street in Tulsa. It's in the Tulsa Arts District near the Vanguard, which I believe is a live music venue, and the Oklahoma Jazz Hall of Fame. Um, it holds a capacity of about 2,800 people, which is seems like a lot to me. That's really, <laughs> I mean, like, I'm, I'm not, like, super up on theater stuff. But that seems like that's a pretty good size. Mm-hmm. And you've been there. Yeah. You said it's one of your favorite yeah, favorite venues. It's one of my favorite. Because yeah. it's just like, before, I didn't, first of all, I didn't know anything about the history. Yeah. Whenever I would go to concerts until just recently. Um, but when you walk in, it's just, I mean, it's it seems massive, but it also seems really small. Yeah. And the acoustics are really cool. And how, I mean, it's built as a theater, not as like a normal concert venue. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like everything is high ceilings and like long paneled walls and so cool. the, um, like er, there are no seats like directly next to the stage, but you can tell where there used to be some cause mm-hmm. like it's all like cement down there. Um, but then like this, the seats just like angle upward and go up to the, towards the doors, like at the front of the building. But like, I don't know, the building on the outside kind of looks like an old high school gymnasium. Yeah, yeah, it does. But on the inside, it looks like an old church to me. Yeah. I don't know. I just is, love it. Uh, is there, we're going to talk a little bit about <laughs> the remodeling that went on, but is that all still like the art deco style mm-hmm. inside? Okay, mm-hmm. that's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. So um, it opened on October 22nd, 1914, and at the time it cost about $125,000 to build. Um, and it was called the Tulsa Convention Hall. And in today's money, that would be about $3.25 million, which for a structure like that, I feel like is not a bad cost. Like, yeah. if that, if you were building something like that today, I don't think that that would... I mean, I haven't built anything like that <laughs> myself, so I can't, I can't say for sure. But I mean, I know that there are homes that are in, like, close to a million dollars that are built. And so that seems like that would be a good... A good price if you were trying to build something like that. Yeah. I mean, when you think about it, it was built 10 years after we became a state. Yeah. And so things like this weren't right. a thing. Yeah. Um, especially in places that were still pretty, like, on the up and coming. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe in Guthrie, where, like, that was supposed to be the capital. So, like, that's where they, everybody built first. And then they kind of, mm-hmm. like, dispersed out. But these kind of buildings and these kind of gathering places weren't a thing. Yeah. Um, and the fact that it, at... 1917, right? 1914, sorry. Yes. Oh, not even 10 years, seven years. Um, like, I mean, it just wasn't something that anybody would go to. Like, it was yeah. for the elite, but, like, this was built for a mass amount of people because right. there were not 2,000 elitists in Tulsa at that time. Right. Which is kind of forward-thinking on their part, but yeah, it's pretty crazy. It is, it's interesting to think about, like, if you were the person creating... It's, it's so weird to think, like, now about living somewhere that is not completely 
like urban, mm-hmm. like or even like a rural area that's still built up. Like mm-hmm. there are places to go and things to do, and it's it's just weird to think about that time period of being like, I'm gonna stake some land and I'm gonna stay here until this is built up to a city. Like mm-hmm. it's really I don't know, it's weird. But um, so it was designed to be a municipal auditorium and convention hall by the Rose and Peterson architectural firm in Kansas City, Kansas. Um, and this information is taken from the Brady Theater's website, I believe. They have a bunch of information about that. Um, there were a couple renovations that it went under, and one was in 1930. Um, the world-renowned architect Bruce Goff was commissioned to come in and do some stuff, and he only had 30 days to transform. It had a barn-like interior to begin with, so I'm guessing it was kind of like just like a place for people to gather to have like community meetings or something like that, yeah. like before before that time, and he turned it into something really elegant. Um, the remodel included art, de- art deco styles of draperies and seats, vertical wall panels of white plaster with thin gold dividers, gilded air conditioning grills, which sounds so fancy, <laughs> um, and acoustic ceiling tiles painted green, blue, white, and gold. Five massive green and white pendant light fixtures were installed centrally in the auditorium. Um, and that just, it just sounds so beautiful. And like, I feel like I need to go there now and see, see some kind of performance. Like, um, I feel like that period of time, like the art deco style of stuff, like it's so beautiful. Mm-hmm. It's just like unrivaled in, I feel like there's so much that's built today. That's just very like, hum, you know, like not, not that take your breath away kind mm-hmm. of stuff that was done then. Um, and then in 1952, additions were made to the theater. They made a front and rear addition to the original structure. Um, upper and lower lobbies were added, and the building was renamed the Tulsa Municipal Theater. Um, August 29th, 1979, it was added to the National Register of Historic Places, and that's when the name Brady Theater began being used. Um, and a lot of really famous people have performed there. Um, Robin Williams, U2, Merle Haggard, Chicago, The Cars, Alice Cooper, Gallagher, um, which I always think of the podcast, What Say You, whenever I hear about Gallagher, which (laughs) it's like a podcast by two of the guys from Impractical Jokers. And they did a podcast about going to see Gallagher. (laughs) And like, it was so, it was so great. It was, I love that podcast. Um, So Journey and Buddy Holly, and I believe Will Rogers actually was someone else who performed there. The list goes on and on. Um, You can look at that list on their website. And we're going to talk about one of the particularly famous people that is said to haunt the Brady Theater. But first, we're going to cover some dark history um, of Tulsa and the Brady Theater is involved in this. So um, the Tulsa Race Riot or the Tulsa Race Massacre of 1921 um, this is really interesting because, and interesting probably in the worst way, because I don't remember ever learning about this in school. Oh, Did you same. grow up in Oklahoma? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah I don't remember. Mm-hmm. I remember, um, I had an Oklahoma history class my 10th grade year of high school and we never, never, not once and not in my American history. We didn't cover this. Um, so this is, it's really eye-opening if you, especially to be from here mm-hmm. and know that this happened here. And it's one of the, if not the worst, like, um, incidents of 
mob violence mm-hmm. in American history. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's really crazy. So it took place on May 31st and June 1st. I'm sorry, uh, was it 1921 or 1931? I have both dates here. Okay, I apologize for that. Okay. Um, okay. We're gonna get we're gonna get the actual date. So um, basically, the general gist of it was that mobs of whites attacked black res- residents and the businesses of the Greenwood District in Tulsa. Um, the attack was carried out by ground and by air and destroyed more than 35 blocks of the district, which at the time was the wealthiest black community in the United States. Greenwood was such a wealthy district that it was known as the Black Wall Street. It was, I believe it was the wealthy, yeah, the wealthiest black community. Um, It was organized in 1906 after Booker T. Washington's 1905 tour of Arkansas, Indian Territory, and Oklahoma. Um, Within the community, there were several grocers, two newspapers, two movie theaters, nightclubs, and numerous churches, which, I mean, for them to have two movie theaters is pretty pretty great because more doesn't even have two movie theaters like <laughs> two movie theaters that's i mean it's it was a big community um there were black doctors lawyers dentists and clergy who lived and served the area lived in and served the area um during washington's trip to the area he encouraged the cooperation the economic independence and the excellence that was being displayed in greenwood um and the prosperity that they experienced was partially a result of the oil boom oil boom and some of the historians and some of the people who've worked on the commission since the time of the race riot that they're trying to piece together what happened, they believe that the wealth of the black community there was part of a factor um, in why some of the race riot happened. Um, the inciting incident was around 4 p.m. on May 31st. And did you get the year? Yes, 1921. 21, okay, May 31st, 1921. Okay, so around 4 p.m., 19-year-old Dick Rowland, who was a black shoeshiner, entered the only elevator of the Drexel building at 319 South Main Street to use the top floor restroom, which was restricted to black people. Um, He encountered a woman, Sarah Page, the 17-year-old white elevator operator, really a girl, not, not a woman, um... And it's likely that they knew each other because this was the only building nearby to where he worked that he was allowed Mm -hmm. to use the restroom of. So it's probably likely that they saw each other fairly often enough to know know who each other, know who the other one was. Um, And at some point during the ride down, a clerk at the first floor clothing store, Renberg's, heard a scream he went to see what was happening. Um, the elevator doors opened. Sarah looked distraught, and Roland fled from the elevator, and the clerk automatically assumed that she had been assaulted, and he summoned the authorities. And also, I read something that said um, in papers at the time, they never used the terms rape or sexual assault. It was always assaulted, so it, it's indicated that they believe that he raped her mm-hmm. from the newspaper headlines that were going around. Um, and... According to the 2001 um, Oklahoma Commission final report, which was done all about the race riot and kind of like what really happened and what um, and kind of in, in an effort to educate people about it, it's actually speculated that they may have not only known each other but been involved with each other and had a yes yeah. and had a quarrel and um, or even if they weren't involved with each other that he might have tripped and steadied himself against the girl. Um, Either way, people are almost certain that they knew each other. And there's a quote from the commission that um, 
They say, yet in the days and years that followed, many who knew Dick Rowland agreed on one thing, that he never would have been capable of rape. And so I think that's really important. Um, because mm-hmm. I, d- I highly, I highly doubt that that transpired in the elevator ride down. Right. Yeah. What, like, five right. Yeah. That, uh, that? yeah. Um, <laughs> so of course he was taken into custody later and a group of whites gathered outside the courthouse that he was in. Um, at the time the papers were kind of sensationalizing this and, a rumor was spreading that shocker. Yeah, shocker. <laughs> Shocking. Um, a rumor was spreading that Dick Rowland had been lynched, and this obviously alarmed the black community of the area, and they arrived at the courthouse armed. And some of some of the white people were also armed, and shots ended up being fired. Twelve people were killed, ten white and two black. After the news of these deaths spread, mob violence just absolutely exploded. Um Thousands of whites rampaged through the black neighborhood that night and the next day, killing men and women, burning and looting stores and homes. And this statistic to me is absolutely staggering. Um, 10,000 black people were left homeless after that. And the property damage amounted to more than $1.5 million in real estate and 750000 in personal damage. Um a lot of the people, understandably, the survivors left Tulsa. Yeah. Um, I can certainly imagine that. Um, the event was largely omitted from history books and classrooms, and it was only recently in 1996 that a commission was formed to study the race massacre in an effort to educate and inform the public about these events from Oklahoma history. Um, but Still not in our history books. I was about to say, clearly, <laughs> clearly they have not integrated that into the history books <laughs> quite yet. Um, so the reason that I bring up the Tulsa race riots and everything is that the Brady theater was actually used as a detention center during the race riot. Mm -hmm. So, and there's a little bit, there's some urban legend that goes with that, that we'll get into after we talk about the most famous guest or not the most famous, but the guest that is supposed to haunt the Brady theater, (laughs) the uh, performer. So... Had you ever heard of Enrico Caruso? No, I can't okay. say. <laughs> I had heard the last name. I knew that he was an opera singer, um, but I didn't know, like, all of this stuff about him. So um, so Enrico Caruso, according to local legend, is the ghost that haunts the Brady Theater. Um, he performed <laughs> there in 1920 and reportedly caught the cold that led to his death um, while he was in the Tulsa area. Um, So Caruso was an Italian operatic tenor, and he performed across Europe and the Americas in a variety of operatic roles. He also made approximately 260 commercially released recordings in a span of 18 years, from 1902 to 1920. That is a lot. Um, And you can actually go on, like, Spotify and Apple Music and stream these. Um, So if you want some mood music to listen to while you're learning about Caruso's fate you can do that um so he was born in Naples Italy on February 25th 1873 he was the third of seven children one of only three to survive infancy and there was kind of this legend about the family that they had 21 children 18 of 18 of whom died in infancy um it a historian however proved this to not be true and what I thought was fun about that was that Caruso and his brother were the ones who like (laughs) propagated that rumor they were like oh yes this is yes yeah this is absolutely surviving children of 21 (laughs) yeah exactly like just us three (laughs) 
Um, so his father was a mechanic, and he definitely wanted his son to adopt the same trade. Um, at the age of 11, he had Caruso apprentice to a mechanical engineer who constructed public water fountains. Um, but at his mother's insistence, he attended school for a time receiving a basic education under a local priest um, during this time. And it was during this time that he actually um, sang in the choir and realized that he was quite musically talented and um, decided that he might want to pursue a career in music. Um, he worked as a street singer to raise money for his poor family. They were they were quite poor. They weren't destitute, but they did struggle for money, and he did struggle throughout some of his life for money after this. Um, he performed at cafes and soirees, and at 18, he used the funds that he had earned from singing to buy his first new pair of shoes. Yeah, that's like, it's really, I, I mean, he's got a, he's got a really cool story. Um, so at age 22, um, he made his professional stage debut at the Teatro Nuovo in Naples. I probably butchered that. I, apologize. I tried saying it last night and I couldn't. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not going to. <laughs> um, he, so that's where he made his debut. And he did a string of other engagements um, after that. And he ended up from that engagement hooking up with someone who instructed him in becoming an opera singer like um i guess kind of a mentor type figure and uh though money was tight throughout most of his early career he finally caught a break when he made his debut debut at the metropolitan opera in new york city which is probably one of the most famous operas in the world um i had a friend who lived in new york city that like got season tickets to the met and i just couldn't even like wrap my mind around the idea of like an opera like you know we have a civic center and everything and i i I don't know do they have operas there ever i don't think so i've never heard i get emails from them and i've never heard about like an opera being there but um i don't know it's just really like very fancy to have an opera house i think definitely and then say oh i have season tickets yeah exactly that's the exact word i was thinking yes posh like it's very it's very um Niles and Fraser Crane. Yeah, like, oh my gosh. Yes. Yeah. Which, like, <laughs> they're always going to the opera, and I love that show. <laughs> with their overcoats. Yes, yeah. exactly. <laughs> and, like, Niles with his little white, I don't know if it would be a scarf or if there's, like, a fancier name for whatever he had. Yeah. Um, so he performed in a production of Rigoletto in November of 1903, and that was the year after he had started doing recordings. Um, after this point, his recording career and his Met career kind of ran in tandem until his death in 1921. And um, I think they kind of bolstered each other. Like it was kind of a situation where he was known for his recordings and also his career and they just kind of fed off of each other yeah. and made him successful. Mm-hmm. Um, That's a lot of work. That is a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, his wife, Dorothy, about his death, there's a lot of information about his death, and he suffered a very long time before he died. Um, his wife noted that her husband's health began a distinct downward spiral in late 1920 after a lengthy North American concert tour, um, and this might have been the same tour on which he caught a cold in Tulsa that it was, legend has it, led to the pleurisy at the time of his fatal illness. Um, he was, however, there is also a story he was injured during uh, during this tour by a falling p- pillar, 
while he was performing in Samson and Delilah, and it hit him on the back over the left kidney. Ow. Yeah. Yeah. And and also, like, he was going, at the time of his death, to have surgery, um, I believe, to have his left kidney removed. Like, it hit him really hard. (laughs) I mean, how, how do you, how do you just keep going oh i don't know i mean i get show must go on but yeah no that like kidney is like yeah damage like yeah like for real damage like to the point that you're gonna have to have surgery to have it removed like that is some dedication that i do not have yeah kudos for caruso (laughs) yeah he was he was committed to the performance um so during a performance at the brooklyn academy of music on december 11th 1920 he had a throat hemorrhage and also obviously, Al. yeah, also Al, <laughs> oh had a throat hemorrhage and that performance was canceled after act one because I mean, that is something that as a singer, you couldn't really get around. Right. Um, his health continued to decline after that point and ultimately he was on his, Rome, his way to Rome. He was back in Italy after his tour um, to see a specialist to have his left kidney removed, which... That, to me, is just going back to that about the injury is, like, mind-blowing that he was injured so badly that he ended up having to... That's, like, that's a heavy pillar. Yeah. Like, that's probably why we use fake pillars now. How did nothing else, now. like, happen? Like, no broken ribs or... I have or no idea. Spine injury or... I don't know. Just that's, right in your kidney. Yeah. Yeah. That's oh. some bad luck right there. And I, I used to do um, Taekwondo, and I've been hit back there before, and it it's a it hurts like so to to be hit hard enough that you need to have it removed i can't even imagine like um, yeah hard pass on that we're good i uh i'll stick to uh radio i think and where there are no falling pillars all the acting is just like just for just for fun um so he was on his way to rome to see the specialist have the left kidney removed um, and they stopped at a hotel. He was given morphine to help him sleep because I'm guessing he was in a lot of pain. Um, and he died at the hotel shortly after 9 a.m. on August 2nd, 1921. He was 48 years old, which is not at all very old. Um, so, and the way that Caruso is tied into the Brady Theater is that he actually performed there. Which I thought it was, I they didn't put him on the website of people that had performed there. I wonder why. Yeah, and I, I wondered if that was, like, them wanting to distance themselves like, no, from... No, we are not haunted. Please stop asking. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> um, so, the legend goes that um, Enrico Caruso went to visit an oil well in Sepulpa. As you do. As you do. I mean, like, I can imagine that would probably be a pretty cool thing to see if you were from... Right. Like, somewhere... it's not like oil wells like we see now. Yeah. Like, these are, like, old-timey... Right. The, you can see the oil. Yeah. People just walk around a barrel type. Yeah. Oil wells. Oh, yeah. I think it would have been, it would have been probably something that someone traveling from a long ways away would be like, this is right. really cool. Italy? Yeah. You're like, mm Yeah. Like, this we'd be like, legit. we want to see your vineyards. And they're like, we want to see your oil wells. <laughs> um, what an awful trade-off. <laughs> yeah, I know. I feel like we're getting, like, the way better part of that right. deal. <laughs> right. <laughs> um. So they went to this oil well in Sepulpa, and they were accompanied by two other cars. Um, the day was wet and rainy, and all three of the cars broke down, which I think is a very, like, urban legendy kind of thing. Um, Caruso had a sold-out show that night at the Brady, and it's said that he had to walk a half mile back in the rain 
from where the cars broke down. Um, he died about nine months later, and his manager always blamed the weather that he had to endure that night for his death. It's said. So another account from a website called thecrypticfile.wordpress.com states that he toured the oil fields in a convertible with the top down. Um, it was a wet day. They got stuck. Um, the group had to hitchhike back to town for that night's performance, which this this includes the whole group in this account. Um and they said that, of course, the performance was one of his best. He caught a cold shortly thereafter, which supposedly led to his death in 1921. Um, there is another account, though, that he got pleurisy from an open carriage ride, and it's not specified if that happened here or in Italy or in some other location between the time that he was here and the time that he died in Naples. Um, so that's kind of where... Caruso comes in to haunt the Brady Theater. And I would be really interested to know if any, like, listeners have been there and experienced anything or, like, you know, that kind of thing. Because we actually, when we were getting ready to um, do this episode, we listened to an EVP that is available. What was the website that that was available on? Hold on. I can't remember. Okay, I will tell another another thing that has to do with the um, energy surrounding... A potential haunting so there are also pictures of black people being walked into the theater at gunpoint during the tulsa race riot um and it has been speculated that the bad energy surrounding that event combined with the deaths that occurred have left a mark um there are numerous accounts that say approximately six thousand black men and women were rounded up and locked inside the brady during the time of this detention Um, The official death toll ended up being 39 to 40. There are claims, though, that 300 entered the theater, were unaccounted for, and never seen again. Um, There were accusations made that they were burned alive in the furnace um, or killed and sealed in the wall, which I think that is, like, a terrifying (laughs) urban legend. Like, that is terrifying. Just knowing what the walls look like, that's awful. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, I, yeah, that's, I'm, I'm gonna say that that is probably not true i like i am fairly certain that that is they would know by now i think um I so know. i mean it's not even in our history books so that's true that like, is true. Know, like we're not yeah don't tell anybody yeah exactly. no walls, don't tell anybody yeah <laughs> don't tell anybody <laughs> don't put that in the history books <laughs> don't put that in the uh little travel pamphlets that right. you get at loves about oklahoma <laughs> um <laughs> So some of the paranormal claims that people have made about the space are like lights turning on and off, unexplained equipment failures, and um, some people don't believe that the space is haunted at all, though. Um, There's kind of like a, there's a camp that believes it is, and there's a camp that believes it isn't, and um, I think, I can understand like if the Brady Theater themselves is like we're not haunted, like stop saying we're haunted. Mm-hmm. But I also think that if I owned a place, a historic place, um, I don't, I don't see being haunted as a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Like I kind of see it as like this is just one extra layer to how this place yeah. is cool. Like, you know, like the Stone Lion Inn, they totally embrace it. Mm-hmm. Like they're like yes. Like come stay. The little stay. girl on the top of the stairs. She's always there. Yeah. Like come come and stay. Come to the murder mystery dinner mm-hmm. and like spend the night in a haunted hotel. Um, so I don't think it's really a bad thing to be haunted. But um, so there is an EVP that you can listen to. Um, what's the website on it? Ghostgadgets.com. Okay. Ghostgadgets.com. <laughs> so if you Google that and Google the Brady Theater um, together, you will probably 
pull up an EVP. Um, and what is it supposedly that the EVP says? So their description of it says that you can hear a male voice saying something that you can't really understand, but the, I guess the person who posted it says they can make out the F word. Okay. Now we listened to it, and I mean, it does sound very creepy. It does. I sound didn't creepy. make out any of the actual words, but it sounded I did not very either. creepy. Um, but they said that there were only two people in the uh, tunnel, which is creepy. Mm-hmm. Avoid the tunnels at all costs. Yeah. Um, whenever this was recorded, Craig and Terry, um, and it's a male voice on the EVP. <laughs> oh, I just got chills. Oh and, like, my gosh. Have, so like this website also has pictures <clears throat> of like where they took the EVP at and like different places around the building, and it's just the creepiest. Like, those look, tunnels are look at this tunnel. Yeah. No. Like no. there is there mm-hmm. is, that that's like a demon tunnel. Yes, and I'm like not even if they're just like ghosts down here. But what if they're like you see a person? Oh, yeah. An actual person. Yeah. Just like hanging out down there, and like all of a sudden now you're in his, their home. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, that's no, like um, you. that's like uh, I think that. I was just talking to someone about this, and I can't remember if I talked about it on the podcast or not. I think I think I did. I think I talked about it with Jay, um, the mole people in New York City. Oh my god! Mm-hmm. Yeah, like there is a book called uh, Reliquary by Douglas Preston, or no, let's see, Douglas Preston Lincoln Child, I think, are their names, um, and they write the Pendergast series, and they wrote Relic, which was made into a movie that's not that great, but also fun, <laughs> but kind of fun if you like like creature features, mm-hmm. like kind of fun. Um, the book is way more fun, and Reliquary is the sequel to that, and it's set in the tunnels under the subway. Oh my gosh! And I mean, uh. I was reading that, and like, I was my body was tense, and I just felt the claustrophobia, and like, I I when it comes to reading stuff, I cannot handle the stuff that's like in a closed, oh. like, oh. There was another road a book called The White Road that has by Sarah Lotz, I believe, that has a whole lot of scenes where the guy is, like, spelunking and gets stuck in a cave oh, and then water nope. is rising. Mm-mm. And it's like, Mm-mm. it's like, no, like, I'm good. Like, if Mm-mm. if God had met Out me to live in a spaces. cave, yeah, he would have put me in a cave. <laughs> right. Like, We'd be there right now. Exactly. We'd be doing this podcast from a cave if that was where I was supposed to be. And I feel the same way about flying. Like, I am not, I am not about that life. I hate flying. But yeah, so uh, so when you were at the Brady Theater, did you like? Was there anything that was amiss? <laughs> um, no. Well, I didn't. I mean, it's kind of dumb. I guess I didn't realize that it was like so historic when we went mm-hmm. down there. I just I knew it was an old building, and it was cool looking. Yeah, I didn't realize there was like an actual history behind it. Right. Um, I mean, it, you do kind of get, like, a creepy vibe, mm-hmm. I'm not going to lie, but that could just be because of how it's built. Yeah. Um, very Art Deco, dark hallways, the lighting is very old. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely is not, like, a modern renovation yeah. happening inside. Yeah. Um, so you can definitely see how it's, like, a little bit creepy. Yeah. I didn't know there were, like, underground tunnels beneath it. <sighs> According to ghostcatches.com, there are. Yeah. Um, but no, it just seems like an old building, and yeah, I don't know. I was a little bit drunk when I was there, so I don't. Yeah, know. <laughs> I, wasn't, I wasn't like looking around for some ghosts. But. Yeah, <laughs> next time I will be. Yes, <laughs> it's like uh, when I found out there are tunnels under Oklahoma City, I was like, "What?" It's I the was, worst. Oh, it's I was, the worst. I was like so excited. I was like, "Oh my god!" And yeah, 
I remember being told when I was little that there were like like the mole people mm-hmm. that we had our own version of that oh in the tunnels and I refused to go down there until I was in like in college yeah and even then I was like oh yeah. I don't want to go down here so yeah. I don't like this at all my mom uh, my mom and dad when they met they were both working downtown Oklahoma City in the 70s and back then there was a bar down there and so they would actually like uh-huh. go down there and like um drink and like you know hang out and stuff a lot of people that work downtown would go down there for happy hour and mm-hmm. like use the the what is it called um do they call it the okc underground mm-hmm. now okay and they would like use that tunnel to get from one building to another and like all this stuff and um but it's still it's like a cool setting for a story i think for sure. Yeah, I should get on that. Okay. <laughs> you should get on that next yes. episode. It's about underground tunnels. Yes. Not the vampires that are in there. Yeah. What was that last week's episode with the vampires? Yes. yes. Yeah. No, not those. Just yeah. the tunnels themselves. Yes. Oh and also, God. why Oklahoma City? Right. Why did you build these? Yeah. It's very... It seems very, um, like... I don't know what year they were built, but it seems like a very 70s thing. Like, But I'm sure they were built way before that because they're, like, under all the buildings and the streets and stuff. Right. Like, there's a direct yeah. like line to different buildings and different areas yeah. of downtown. Like, it's, it wasn't just a mistake. Or right. Like, for funsies. Yeah. And it's, like, neon lights down there. Like yeah. It's really, it's a very interesting thing. If you ever get a chance to walk around down there, you should. It's pretty cool. But, yeah. Hold on. I'm trying to look up the date. Like, okay. Yeah. More than one thing at a yes. time. Yes. <laughs> We're going to get that date. Oh, you're so right. Open in 1974. Really? Okay. Woo. I'm good. <laughs> Covers more than 20 square blocks, which is a, a lot. lot. Yeah. It's really interesting. Yeah. So going back to the Tulsa massacre, not to keep jumping around, mm-hmm. but so it was like more than 10 blocks that they destroyed. That's like, so not like Bricktown, downtown OKC nowadays, but like. Mm-hmm. 10, 15 years ago, that would be the equivalent of knocking out the whole area. Yeah. I'm like, that's... Insane. So crazy. And what I want is for someone to go through... I'm not smart enough to do this, but for someone who is smart enough to do this, to go through and, like, recreate the map area Mm -hmm. with, like, current day Tulsa. Yeah. And, like, just overlay it so you can kind of see, like, here's where it started and ended. And, like, here's how much of the area of it covered. and So, like, give you a a reference point for how big this damage was. Yes. That's a really good idea. And if if there is... That was Somebody please do it. Yes, somebody (laughs) please do that. Like, if you can overlay the map and kind of give people a better idea of... Because I think it's it's hard to wrap your mind around um, landmarks that aren't there or mm-hmm. kind of like it's a very, I mean, even though you know how many blocks 10 blocks is, it's kind of nebulous. And like if you had this and this to mark it by, I think it would right. be very like enlightening. Yes. I think that would be for good. Sure. That's a really good idea, Amy. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> so I guess that that's about all I've got for you guys on the Brady Theater and if anybody has any experiences with the Brady Theater, though, I would love to hear them, and I will pass them on to Amy because oh gosh, I'm sure yes. she would love yes. to hear them too. Um, so yeah, so if there's anything you want to plug or like your Instagram account or anything like that, um, my Instagram is just Amy Reese, A I M E E R E E C E. I post a lot of things about my, um, of my dog because yes, he is awesome, adorable. Same as Hemingway. <sighs> Dogs are the best. Perfect. Yes. Um, that's pretty much it. Watch KOCO. Yes. Watch <laughs> KOCO, KOCO, you guys. <laughs> yes. And sometimes on her Instagram, she posts like cool behind the scenes <laughs> yes. type stuff, like yes. especially to your stories. Yep. I have noticed that's pretty cool. Um, so all I've got is follow the Instagram, 
the Facebook. It's at Erie Um, There's a Facebook group, which is Erie Okies, and you could find that, I think, just by searching for it. Um, also, I have started an Instagram for my writing, which is at Erie Okie Press, and that's kind of where I'm going to be posting updates about the stuff that I have plans to publish um, this year and next year. So um, just keep listening. You guys are awesome. So stay spooky. Bye.